and welcome to Inequality Talks, a podcast from the volunteers of Mellenfolkelet Zambiege Ohus. This episode is a live recorded interview with meteorologist Jesper Talgo and climate activist from Tanzania, Happy Etros. This interview was part of the Climate Justice Days. today. Um, thank you all for joining. My name is Elise. I'm going to be moderating this interview today with Jessica Tago and Happy Itros who is joining us online. Um, so as all of you I'm sure are aware this is an event which is part of the Climate Justice Days um, both in Aarhus and in Copenhagen and uh, well why are we here? Just a little reminder. Uh, we have a climate crisis. As we could see this year already, we've had heat waves across uh, across Europe and the US and Australia, flash floods in Pakistan, India. Well, we'll get into that. So we're, we're here today because we're facing a climate crisis and uh, the effects of climate change will be felt uh, disproportionately by those who are least responsible for it. So that's the climate justice aspect of it. Um, and we are here today to speak to Jesper Tago, who has, uh, as I'm sure many of you recognize him as the weatherman, uh, Danish <laughs> weatherman, uh, the Danish weatherman. weatherman. He's been uh, reporting on uh, weather for 40 years, uh, he worked at the Danish Meteorologist Institute. Um, he's recently uh, written a book and published a book called Defense Guerrilla. Uh, yeah? Third edition. Third edition, yes. The first was 2006, right? Um, and um, uh, Happy Itros is a climate activist from Tanzania. Um, she has worked uh, with the global platform, uh, global actions platform. Yes, I've written it down. Is that correct? Global actions, global platforms, Tanzania. Sorry, um, and also works a lot with gender issues and women empowerment. And um, and yeah, we're gonna learn so much from our guests today, um, our experts here in climate change and climate justice. So let's give a big, warm welcome to our guests today. Okay, so let's just go ahead and jump right into it. Um, climate change. We all know it's happening. We're not going to have that conversation here today. But let's get a little bit more of the scientific um, background of climate change and uh, Jesper Tago, you've been communicating about climate change for many, many, many years now. Um, I want to ask you first how that has been for you, uh, this personal journey. A long, long, slow movement. Uh, first of all, I was um, recognizing climate change already back in the 80s and 90s. And uh, that time I began working on television uh, in, uh, in 1990. And at that time, no one uh, agreed that there was uh, a climate issue here developing. The funny thing is that uh, we had the uh, election uh, in 2019, and uh, I met our new, uh, the Prime Minister, which we have today, Mette Frederiksen. Uh, I met her at uh, the election time, and uh, the first thing she said to me <laughs> was that 25 years ago, you were the first guy who mentioned climate change that it would be a big issue. Mm. And uh, I couldn't help saying, why didn't you do anything? <laughs> I told you so. <laughs> yeah, so, precisely. So uh, it has been uh, a long way, uh, but nowadays uh, everyone, I guess, uh, recognizing that climate change is happening. We can see it across the world. We can see it happening. Uh, and especially in uh, the vulnerable countries where uh, they have done almost nothing uh, for it, but they are facing uh, big challenges. 
So uh, climate change is here and we need to act. We have said that many years and we have to continue saying it. Thank you. So um, maybe we could get a little bit more of the scientific information about what is the significance of the 1.5 degrees uh, Celsius and perhaps talk a little bit about tipping points and what they are. First of all, uh, the 1.5 degrees was a part of the Paris Agreement. Uh, first time it was mentioned actually was in Copenhagen 2009, but uh, in uh, 2015 uh, at COP21, uh, when we had the Paris Agreement, it was uh, written down. But we haven't done enough to uh, to reach uh, 1.5 or to stop the uh, increasing in temperature with 1.5 degrees. So uh, that is out of question. Uh, maybe if we are lucky and we are doing enough, we maybe can uh, do two degrees. But now, uh, as we are going today, we are facing 2.8 or three degrees. So that is the main thing. Uh, secondly, uh, the consequences, which you are mentioning, uh, the tipping points, which are a, a, a variety uh, of tipping points around the globe, uh, the rainforest, the ice caps, uh, the Gulf Stream. Uh, the, there's so many things uh, which are going to happen faster and faster uh, when we are going to reach these tipping points. And well, I, I, I read um, uh, an article uh, a few days ago from Will Stephan from uh, Australia, and he said that he thought that uh, we have reached the tipping points already for some uh, parts of, uh, of these consequences. So what can we do? Uh, we can only do one thing, mentioning decreasing the uh, emission of greenhouse gases, because that is the reason. So we need to have much more action on the climate um, uh, issue on the coming uh, COP, COP, uh, COP meeting in Egypt in uh, November. Um, but my, I'm not so confident, sorry. <laughs> that was one of my questions for you, um, for both of you. We'll get to asking Happy about uh, climate change in Tanzania, but I have a few questions for uh, Jesper first. So um, we see the COP27 in Egypt in November. Um, and I wanted to ask you um, about your confidence level. And you've already answered that question. Um, we've already seen that the IBCC reports um, that we are headed for 1.1 degrees. Uh, uh, we already have 1.1. And yes, yeah, sorry, and we are headed for 1.5 in 40 year, uh, in 2040. In a, in a few years. Yeah. They're saying now, uh, okay. in three, five years, we will reach 1.5 at least at one year. Maybe not permanently, but we will reach 1.5. Yes. In maybe three years. So when we are building a whole uh, political agenda around this 1.5, um, how do you personally see this when we look at more realistic projections, which say two to five degrees Celsius? When we had the, the meeting in uh, Glasgow last November, COP26, uh, all the delegates came out after they have written, signed the document, saying that the, the story about 1.5 degrees was intact. I wasn't agree, and I uh, found the figures of the emission and uh, what the IPCC are saying. IPCC are saying in their last report that if we will have a chance to get 1.5, we need to halve the emission until 2030, which is in eight years from now. And I got the figures uh, and I could say that uh, that would mean that every country on earth should have the same agenda and ambition as Denmark. Denmark is set to have one of the biggest uh, uh, ambitions and uh, all the countries around the globe must do the same. Will that happen? No. So I, I think they're foolish uh, saying that, continuing saying that uh, we can reach 1.5. No. Uh, it's out of question. We will reach at least two degrees if nothing is happening. And uh, I can't see that they will increase their ambition so much in Egypt. Uh, the figures I've heard uh, will only be a slight movement. Mm. 
And already with 1.1 degrees uh, change in global average temperatures, we are already seeing extreme uh, weather events occurring all over the globe. Uh, when I was reading about tipping points, I kept hearing about uh, melting of the uh, ice sheets and um, the dying of uh, the rainforest. I was wondering if you could explain to me how it works with the thawing of permafrost and why that can that tipping point can contribute to climate change. Well, on, on uh, the northern continents, uh, there are areas most to the north uh, which are permanently frozen. It has been there for uh, for hundreds of years, and it's uh, obvious that uh, when temperatures are rising. Uh, some of this, these areas will melt or, or, or thaw. In this soil, there is organic materials, leaves and uh, uh, lots of uh, things uh, from, uh, from organic matters, and they will uh, begin to, uh, to be rotten. And they, that will emit uh, methane, uh, and they will emit uh, CO2. Mm. Uh, so it's just a question how much will there be? And the scientists are not quite uh, in agreement. Uh, they are discussing how much is there, will, will it be a, a big uh, issue. Um, I got a number from uh, scientists saying that uh, if uh, it's going as we expect from now, it will mean uh, 0 0.1, 0 0.2 degrees extra. Okay. So it, it is an issue, maybe not the bomb, uh, but uh, it, it is an issue. Uh, so, uh, and it is a tipping point because uh, when these extra uh, greenhouse gases is coming into the atmosphere, the temperature is rising anymore, much more, and uh, that will, of course, thaw much more of the uh, of the permafrost area. Mm -hmm. So it is um, intensifying uh, day by day. Right, and we're reaching these tipping points, which means irreparable damage, things that we cannot go back and. Oh yeah, the tipping point is uh, you, you're passing a line and you can't go back. Right. Okay, um, I want to ask Happy, um, what is climate change looking like in Tanzania? How have you seen the effects of climate change playing out? And um, what does it mean for specific groups of people? Wow, wow that's a very beautiful question. Thank you so much, Eris. Um, I would say the 21st century is one of the eras whereby the effects of climate change have massively displayed to the people. And with the presence of different global disasters, including COVID-19, um, the Ukraine-Russia war, everything has been going on around the world together with the climate change going on. I think this has severely um, affected the people in the global south. So as far as Tanzania is concerned, um, we are facing different risks um, as far as climate change is concerned. Um, we have high levels of sea, high sea levels rising, but also temperature rising have been one of the issues happening here in Tanzania. So, like what I said before, Tanzania is one of the countries that depends highly on agriculture, but also it depends on tourism as well. So, having the impacts of climate change um, as far as um, but high levels of temperature and water and sea levels. This includes, this means that there is a high risk of economic system of the country to fall down or to go to a lower level compared to how it's moving in its developmental stages. So we have more than 80% of people in the country who are farmers and they depend on agriculture, whereby if we have extreme weather, weather events, including drought and flood, this massively means that we will use a lot of energy to mobilize the resources, including water, but also the food insecurity level is going to be high, it's going to be like at risk. That means that the people in the country will also have the risk of like having lower level of income, but also like they'll be having challenges to mobilize their own resources for their own, for their own family. Apart from that, um, we are at a high risk of losing a lot of biodiversity in the country. Like I said before, um, Mount Kilimanjaro has lost 70% of its ice since 1990. For 32 years now, Mount Kilimanjaro has lost its ice. And in 2011, 17 feet of ice was swept away, like because of climate crisis. 
a lot has been happening in the country. And as far as we know, Mount Kilimanjaro is the tallest mountain in Africa. It means that it modulates all. It's, it's, it's one of the things that attracts a lot of tourists in the country. So if we're going to lose Mount Kilimanjaro, this has a, a very huge implication in the country, especially when it comes to the economic system of the country. So I think it's high time that we work for climate crisis and climate change because the impact is huge and massive, especially to people who are living in extreme poverty. But also something else, because of extreme weather events, I remember recently in 20, I mean in April, the end of April, we had massive rains, a lot of floods happening, thousands of people were, dis were displaced because of, um, because of the floods happening. But also there are some people who their relatives are still missing because of the floods that are happening. The same thing happened in 2020, 2021, same issues are happening. I believe that this is our time. This is the time that we need to stand up and work. And I think the 21st century has severely shown that we are not doing enough. We need to like modernize and innovate our ways in order to help the community, holding accountable the global north in order to help the local communities in the global south. Thank you. Uh, one uh, one question for me, Happy. Um, uh, you mentioned Kilimanjaro uh, and the ice uh, on the top. Uh, how much are the people depending on fresh water from uh, from Kilimanjaro? I would say a lot of people depend. We have even a brand, a bottle brand called Kilimanjaro. It's one of the most famous resorts in the country. Like I can say, we have retail sellers and wholesale sales. So these people depend highly highly on this say uh, on selling these bottles of water and then uh, one more thing you uh, you said that it's time to act and i <laughs> highly agree uh, and I, i have to say also that it is uh, a bit too late uh, we cannot avoid temperature rising uh, from now on uh, the only thing we can do is mitigate so much that uh, the temperature will stabilize uh, maybe in 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, so what will happen uh, to drought, to flooding, to um, more climate change, uh, it will just continue. So we have to do two things on a, at a time, mitigate yeah. and adapt. Yeah, I think that is one of the powerful things. I agree with you so much. When it comes to floods, sometimes you could ask yourself, like, why are people living in areas that are prone to floods here in Tanzania? But then, you know, people cannot afford living in good houses because of poverty. We have people that are living under one USD dollar per day, and they depend on that amount, less than one US, I mean, two USD dollars. They depend on that amount to, like, put food on the table for their kids. And then you tell this person they have to move to a better or higher place or not a better place of living. So I think this brings a greater implication to the community that as far as we want to mitigate or we want to control the damage that has been caused in the country, I still think we have like a better a better shot at you know holding accountable the greater north, I mean the the, the north countries or the global north countries in order to help the local community. Um, Happy, you were just talking about the existing inequalities which exacerbate how climate change um, affects people. Um, you were also doing a seminar, um, was it yesterday? No, two days ago in ecofeminist leadership. And you talked a little bit about the gendered impacts of climate change in Tanzania. Do you think you could spend a few minutes uh, discussing what that actually means? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, as far as the gender issues concerned in the country, um, first and foremost, women, uh, we have a lot of women in the country, like women are more than 50% of the, of the whole population in Tanzania. So um, with the arrival of um, climate crisis, this, this gives us a different perspective when it comes to you know, the impact of climate crisis on women. And most of the women, 70% of them, live in extreme poverty situation. And in this extreme poverty situation, these women are given gender roles that they're expected to be homekeepers of the house, but also to, you know, to mobilize different activities in their local communities. And some of the women, I'll say more than 60% of them, are involved in farming activities. 
So having the rise of climate crisis or the impact of climate crisis gives us a different perspective that there are going to be lack of, I mean, uh, scarcity of natural resources, which means water, land, and food security. And this has a different implication as well. When you talk about lack of, you know, water, land, and, secure, and food security, this means we are implying there are some people who can use to their advantage, you know, to, to control these resources, and then some of the gender-based the gender violence cases can enter through that. We are talking about somebody asking for sexual favors in order to help a woman acquire land. We are talking about a woman who doesn't have knowledge regarding the issues of climate crisis, regarding the issues of, you know, all the resources, food security. We are talking about a woman who lacks water in her place in order to, you know, to, to help her, her children and her children at home. So this woman needs to go to travel to different longer distances in order to get water. And this woman needs to return home to put the food on the table. And we are talking about people who are living in natural poverty, facing circumstances that are beyond them, themselves. So I think with the increase in climate crisis, different gender-based violence cases that could increase, including domestic violence, sexual um, corruption, but also psychological torture can also increase because of gender-based violence. So I think we should not take this in a, a very, we should, I think we should cover this or we should like view the climate crisis in a 360 perspective that what are the what are the issues that may arise out of the crisis that has happened, out of the impacts that have been prevailing in the community, taking into account that, that most of the community still lives in extreme poverty. <laughs> Only a question. <laughs> what I was just wondering, uh, what are the men doing? Aren't they helping uh, get in the water, or uh, are they just uh, sending the women out? So, uh, I would say the Tanzanian culture is a little bit different in that sense. We have men who are really good, and we have women who live families as well. I'm not saying like 100% of men are doing bad things, but most of the people, especially living in the rural areas, still are having struggle, like they still struggle with a lot of gender-based violence cases. People who are living in an urban area who are, have that awareness that there is women empowerment for equality, women can still read, women need education, women need all these things, they're doing great. But then what about the people living in rural areas that still do not have the knowledge that these things are happening? There are people who still do fem female genital mutilation. And then there are people who are like, I married you, you're supposed to stay at home and cook for the kids. This is your role. If you're not going to do it, then you're not a good wife, then the community like gives you a certain kind of naming or it labels you in a certain kind of way that you're not a good woman, you're not, not a good wife, you're not a good mother, something like that. So I would say it's all about the cultural, cultural perspective that is prevailing in the country, especially in the places whereby people do not have the knowledge. And different youth-led organizations, women-led organizations are doing their best in the country in order to reach out to so many communities, especially in the rural areas, to educate the communities. Recently, we had a case whereby a young lady, it, this happened the same same week, this, this week, as we are finishing this week, I would say, there's a young lady in one of the regions who was beaten, severely beaten by the husband. And this young lady is 18 years old. She's married to a man who is domestically abusing her. And also, the current case that we have seen I think it's Iran or Iraq, I don't remember, the woman that was killed by the police because she didn't wear the, you know, the hijab. She did not wear the hijab. Yeah, Iran, yeah. She did not wear the hijab. That is, I think that is toxic. There's some cultures that are very toxic to the community that are killing women. And then if we like put the climate crisis on top of their head again, I think we are like creating more, more, more damage to the community, especially the next generation of women and men coming through. So if we have good men around here, and I believe we have good people, good men, good women who are, you know, who campaign for equality, gender rights, empowerment of women, I think this, I'm giving you big ups and congratulations for continuing to support women and continuing to empower them to, you know, to speak up and say their problems and to put them on the table and to like support them in throughout their challenges. Yeah. So, so you are saying that uh, a change of culture 
as a part of the solution of the climate change. Yeah, yeah. So we'll we'll actually get to talking about climate justice, what we can do about it um, later on. Um, but it's um, it's very interesting to hear your perspective. Um, obviously, as somebody who works towards women and, and girl empowerment, um, this is a very important part of the climate justice movement. And uh, it all re requires, climate justice requires that we recognize that uh, climate change affects uh, women and girls disproportionately in a lot of Global South countries. So, um, We've talked a bit about Tanzania, what's going to happen in Tanzania, what's already happening in Tanzania. I should stop saying what, what's going to happen. What is already happening and going to get worse in Tanzania? I would like to ask Jesper uh, a bit about what, what, what will climate change or, uh, look like or what has it looked like in Denmark? Because as I can imagine, it will be quite different. Yeah, somehow, somehow different, but also the same, because uh, uh, what uh, a higher temperature means is that uh, we have much more evaporation, the soil will be more dry, uh, much more water vapor in the atmosphere, which meaning that uh, there will be much more precipitation, uh, and the precipitation will be uh, stronger, harsh, uh, and there may be also longer rain periods. So it is a change. Uh, and uh, in in the climate and in the weather, and I think that is very very important to state that what is happening globally now is a change of uh, of how we have built our societies uh, everywhere uh, in Denmark, in Tanzania, in South Africa, South America, and so on. Uh, everywhere we have uh, we have uh, built our societies on uh, on the on the back of of the climate, uh, a certain temperature, a certain amount amount of precipitation, seasons, and so on, and when it is changing, which is uh, which it is everywhere, uh, then we have to change our societies. We have to change agriculture. We have to change our infrastructure. We have to change how to live in this new weather situation. Uh, and here in Denmark, uh, we have had a lot more flash floods, we have droughts, we have, uh, of course, higher temperatures and a change of agriculture. We have uh, other species in, uh, in our waters and uh, in, uh, in the forest and uh, uh, insects, birds and so on. And so we can see nature is changing uh, and it will continue to change. Uh, so, uh, so what we are doing is changing our infrastructure so we can handle uh, the water. Uh, that is uh, rising seawater, as you have in Tanzania. Uh, we have uh, uh, the the showers, uh, the thunderstorms, which are stronger, uh, and we have uh, the groundwater, which is uh, rising. Uh, so we have uh, water from above, from uh, from the side, and from beneath, uh, and we have to cope with it. And uh, we are lucky here in uh, in Denmark that we are rich and uh, we can we can do these things. We can change uh, the infrastructure. We can build dikes uh, towards the sea. And I'm quite aware that uh, that's not the, the case in everywhere everywhere on earth. So we know that uh, a lot of people are more uh, in uh, vulnerable countries uh, where you don't have uh, the money. You may have expertise uh, to do it, but uh, if you don't have the money. Uh, you you cannot adapt, uh, so that is uh, I think a part of. I know we are going to talk about climate justice later, but uh, uh, but it's a part of it. Uh, the responsibility of uh, help each other, because if we are not helping each other, uh, that crisis will change from a climate crisis to a, a social crisis to a neighboring crisis to uh, to, to conflicts, uh, and we don't want that. We have enough conflicts uh, uh, already, uh, so so that's a uh, that's a part of it. Right. So when people say, "Oh, uh, climate change means nice summers in Denmark, and now we can produce <laughs> wine," you say, "Wait a second, let Sorry. me just get Yosvatago to explain this to you." Um, okay, so I think now uh, for the most important part of the discussion, which is climate justice. 
I would, I would like to ask Happy um, if you could maybe talk a little bit about, um, okay, in your ideal climate justice perfect world, what would it look like? What would, what would climate justice mean for uh, the political <coughs> sphere, the economic sphere, the individual sphere? Wonderful, thank you so much. Um, so in my ideal that I dream about or that I believe we can reach I see us in living in an environment where we respect each other because I term climate justice as like as a sense of respect for others because the fact that we have respect for others it's easier for us to care and know that we need not to you know to do uh, to invest in fossil fuels because there are some other nations that are going to go through you know other severe consequences because of what we can do so I believe. A perfect world, a world that we have climate justice, involves respect for each other, but also um, it involves different countries coming together in order to help the global south. For example, including them in the climate financing, a lot of financing that can help them mitigate and adapt to the climate consequences that they are facing because of what has been caused. But also something else that we are still missing is highly involving involving them in making decisions in different meetings in different you know decision morning uh, decision making processes in order to help these local communities. So I think the term um, the ideal perfect world of climate justice involves us respecting each other, but also being accountable or having leaders who are accountable at most of the time in the, in this climate injustice situation those who who you know have a voice especially in the cop or the places that we are making decisions that's what i'm saying those who have power the voice are the ones that are those who you know have money have the funds they're the ones who can you know say something and that can be mobilized but then these people who like do not have who have less power and less income they can say something, yes, it's taken into account, but then it's not really implemented in the actual in the, in the actual social environment or communities. So I think a perfect ideal world is the world where we respect each other, but also we take into account the decisions, but also you know the ideas of these people living in the local communities, include them in the decision making process, and not only uh, including them in decision making process, including and doing what they have said, like making them feel heard and implementing it, actually taking into accountability every aspect. For example, if, if they need the funding and then you have phrased that you're going to give them the funding, then I believe by implementing that and promoting this funding, you know, to all these global health countries is something that is very perfect. But also having that continuous sense of support because. As far as Tanzania is concerned, yes, we receive the funding, but then the funding is not continuous. It comes in, in not in packages, in seasons, and that you know makes us not to, to have that continuous sense of flow of you know of development, but also of, of, of ways that we can use to mitigate, you know, but also adapt to the climate changing situation all over the world. So I think we still need to make that a movement, or we still have to work on that. So that's why the perfect. Ideal world would be like not perfect, but at least it's <laughs> a start to that level. Yeah. Yes. So you mentioned a really uh, many many important things there: um, uh, funding mitigation, funding also green uh, energy instead of uh, investing in fossil fuel, uh, and the fossil fuel industry, which we see uh, uh, private banks doing and uh, central banks supporting, making those loans very secure. Um, and a fundamental respect for each other. And um, and then I wanna go back to this point you made about um, inclusion in decision-making processes. Because right now, uh, it's my own opinion that the international governance bodies are uh, um, a hegemony of the richest, most powerful countries. And how do global South countries then unite to become a unified force against the most polluting um, the most polluting, most powerful countries? Wow, that's a very good question. Thank you so much. I honestly think um, we need to put aside our cultures, like our differences, especially in the global power. We need to work on 
you know, putting aside everything that makes us, you know, we have different cultures, different backgrounds. For us to be able to really address the impacts of climate crisis, we need to come together and work in solidarity, but also have joint activism in holding accountable the countries, um, especially the countries in the global north. So I think what the global south needs in order to make this possible, first and foremost, I, I believe information is very powerful. I usually say that some, if somebody does not have information, then it's easier to manipulate you. So if you do not have information, like the actual real information, it's easier for somebody to lie to you, to manipulate you, and you know to like use that to his or her advantage. So I believe having information is the powerful key. Some of the people in the global house still do not have information about climate crisis, and some of them still think it's something that is cliche. Maybe the whole world is talking about it, but it's not really what is happening in the world, you know? Like, what are these people saying? I think they're using gas money, you know, all that stuff, because, you know, they don't really understand what is going on. But I believe information is very powerful, so we need to create more awareness to the community. And when the community is empowered with dedication, then together we can come around and find ways on how best we can hold accountable these people we have through our own governments, you know, our own local government to, to like remind them, like, you guys, we need this to be done, and you people, you have power, you can speak up, you can do, you know, all those stuff that you're doing in order to, you know, provide the funding. But also, apart from that, we can use our own social platform. So I think powerful tools like technology tools have helped us, you know, to, to get to that level of knowing that. Um. I quite agree that uh, information and education is a keystone uh, for the future. Um, educating uh, the, the young people uh, in school. But uh, I would like to ask uh, how will uh, how do you see the information go around the country? Can you use television? Uh, will uh, that be a, a possibility? I can tell you that I've tried a lot of times here in Denmark to make programs uh, or uh, to be able to uh, educate and give information about climate change, it was very, very, very difficult. Um, in the first 15 years I was on TV, I wasn't allowed to talk, talk about climate change. Wow. Uh, in the last 10 years or uh, 12 years I, I was on TV, it, uh, it became better. But how is it in, uh, in Tanzania? Maybe we have a oh. new uh, Tanzania uh, weatherman. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We never know. You're, you are 100 times a fellow Tanzanian. Welcome. I would love, I love, love to have you. <laughs> See you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I would say in Tanzania, we do have weather, you know, people talk about weather, but then they do not relate it to climate. So, what we do, for example, what I wear work at Global Platform Tanzania, we have been able to move into different regions to educate them, especially those regions that are highly affected because of climate change. We have the coastal region, one place called Mafia Island, but also the Kiwa, that is in the southern part of Tanzania as well. So in this particular region, we had an earth movement. We protested, we had an earth movement. that we spoke to the people, especially those who were cutting down mango trees illegally. So we had this act movement, we were mobilizing people, educating them that, you know, you do this, this is what is going to happen, a lot of blood, we at risk, and all that stuff that is happening. But also, we have been able to use our own art and our own cultural activities in order to educate the community regarding climate change. That's what we have been doing, using songs, using art exhibitions. But then, you know, the more you need to, to mobilize people, you know, the more you need to do activism, you need the funding. So we do not reach the, you know, that huge amount of people that we want to reach because we, we cannot afford to, you know, to, to, to go to that level. So we, we do it when we get the funding, we again go and educate the community. So I think these are things that we need to work as a country in order to make it more open to the people. But also, as far as the question is concerned, um, Mr. Jasper, I think we still need to educate the community. Then it's easier for these people to even understand the injustice that happens as far as the climate change is concerned. So it's easier for them to hold accountable the bigger nations. Um, you mentioned one, uh, one very good thing, which I'm doing also. Uh, art is uh, could be a very, very big um, issue here. 
people uh, look at art in different way uh, than uh, if you're coming with figures. I'm doing uh, climate concerts and I'm d d doing uh, speeches with art festivals. Uh, but when you talk about climate change, you very often use figures and graphs and so on, and uh, it, it can be bored for some people, uh, and they don't understand what you're saying. But yeah. if you're doing music or literature or something, you're, you're, get, you're getting into the ears in different, and the brain in different way. I think it's very powerful, like what you say, like it has proven for sure. Like the more we use art, it, 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 like, it portrays the message in a different way and an easier way for people to understand it in their own perspective, especially if you use the cultural you know, practices in that particular way. So we have like um, traditional languages in the country. So like different regions have their own traditional languages. So if you portray the songs or the even drama in that particular area, in that perspective, in that traditional language, it's easier for people to understand like, oh, this is how it relates to this, or this is how it's happening. And we could see the impact, the different impact in that. So I think we should also like try to find ways on how we can generate our own income in order to help the local community while we are striking, while we are voicing our, our sound, or we are voicing ourselves up to the global north, especially the countries who are responsible for climate change, to finance the project, to finance people, especially for the loss and damage that is happening in the country. Yeah, I'll say so. I wanted to mention a few things. Uh, first, you just mentioned loss and damage. I don't know if um, um, how many people are aware of this, but Denmark has just now become the first uh, UN member state to um, to pay the uh, some countries in the Sahel um, in Africa loss and damage, and it's not very much. Um, it's what is it? Thirteen point three million. We can say it's not that much, but it's a big political move um, and a, a signal that says, "Hey." Um, we are responsible and we need to pay. And so perhaps this can be a, a beacon of light um, in the climate justice uh, world. Um, but as you've mentioned so many times now that we need continuous fund, or you need continuous funds to, um, to adapt and mitigate climate change, but also um, ways that you can empower people instead of just becoming uh, dependent on these sources of income and cre uh, reproducing rather these systems of inequality that we have already. Um, I had another question actually because uh, we just talked about information and the power of information and as we know already um, oil companies uh, were well aware of their impact of uh, climate change and um, and as you mentioned you weren't even allowed to speak about climate change I, I can imagine that this was yeah a product of, um, of uh, some people in power with money who were you know controlling or do you want to say something to that and then I'll make my <laughs> that point. is more, more or less a, a question about um, uh, the Danish uh, television uh, was funded by the state somehow and uh, they were afraid that uh, they would get less money if I was talking too much about climate change, because there wasn't the politicians wasn't agree in agreement with uh, climate change. There was people uh, uh, saying something that climate change is not uh, uh, done by humans. Uh, it's uh, natural. It's uh, and it's nothing. It has uh, means nothing to us. Uh, so, so if I said that uh, it is a very big issue. Uh, I uh, the, the television thought that uh, the politicians would be angry, mm -hmm. and uh, so so therefore it's uh, it, it was very very difficult to uh, to talk about climate change at that time. Yeah, and it was part of. I mean, that's also a product of the whole information campaign that they that these corporate lobbyists um, mm. um, uh, developed to avoid responsibility. Um, so. If we're going to talk about climate justice, we've talked a lot about the, the uh, richest countries that are responsible. Um, I had here a figure that I wanted to read that um, the just the 23 richest countries, which is 14% of the world's population, 
have produced 60% of the world's carbon emissions since 1850, which is 40%. Uh, that's just one uh, statistic. There could be other measures somewhere else. But, um, but I think it's really important in this climate dis justice discussion to talk about corporate power because um, here's another statistic. 122 corporations account for 80% of the carbon emissions. That's from Corp Watch. Um, so a question for both of you. Um, how do we address the challenge of corporate power in, in, uh, in, in achieving climate justice? These are structural economic challenges that um, there's no easy answer to this question. But what are your thoughts if, you, if you'd like to share? First of all, uh, I think consumers uh, can do a lot here. Uh, consumer, consumers can uh, tell the, uh, uh, the companies that they don't want to buy their, uh, their stuff if it's not climate friendly. Uh, and by that, uh, also saying that uh, the companies in some way also uh, are responsible for what has happened. Uh, and that is... Uh, uh, and should be a part of the discussion. Happy, would you like to um, add your thoughts or comments? Yeah, I, I would like to agree with uh, Jasper that consumers have power if you want to, to address the corporate powers of the corporate people. But also my thoughts would go right better to the government stakeholders. Um, you know, like for example here in Tanzania, for a corporate to be registered, there's a specific basic body that registers, you know, these corporates and what they do and the consequences to the environment and things like that. So I think also the policies have to address clearly and to, to you know, to, to not like beat around the bush, to beat around the bush. Like if a corporate wants to introduce something or wants to introduce, you know, a company that works on something in the community, then they have to address sincerely about the environmental impacts climate change impact a lot of the law. If that is gonna affect the local community, then I think I think they have the power to like say no, this cannot be registered, this cannot be done in our country because we are conscious or we we're like we we have a high risk of climate change in the country happening or we have this and that going on. So we do not want to increase carbon emission in our own country. So I think the government also has power to do that. And as much as the consumer ha also have the power together if we do that, or if we address the government to do that and to take that into accountability. I think this is, these are the things that the government needs to address, but also the people in the country need to address. I very much agree that what the government can do is what they're talking about here, that they put a tax on the emission. And if we, but you still need the information to the consumers that they, they need to pay more for this. Uh, product here because there's a, a lot more emission. Uh, so the information has to go hand in hand with uh, legislation uh, for, for, for CO2 tax. So um, I want to leave um, time for people to ask questions. So I'll just ask a, a final question to both of you. Uh, you can answer very briefly about um, just maybe your final thoughts on how we can act on climate justice instead of just theorize about it. Would one of you, Happy, would you like to start? Okay, perfect, I'll start. Um, I think it's time for everybody to work and I'm really excited that everybody's here. Like, I believe everybody who is in this room, I'm not in that room, but I believe everybody who is in that particular room right now, um, is like passionate about climate change. So I know this means we're in a joint movement to help our local communities, you know, have that climate justice in, in their own communities. So what I'd like to encourage everyone is that we should continue working together, but also continue to learn so much because each and every day, I can say the impacts of climate crisis are like changing, like we, we should keep on changing our knowledge, our skills and see how best we can, you know, go together with that in order to help our local communities. Like the far the, the farther I go, the further I go deep into knowing what climate justice is and climate change is. Right now I know that there are policies, you know, and these policies need to keep to be renovated 
into being abated because of how the climate impacts are happening. There are projects going on, but then these projects have to know have the 360 degree of solving the challenges in the local community. For example, we talk about, you know, the people who have like undergone the crisis, like the people who are involved, let's say, in the floodings or the drought situation. These people have relatives who have lost, and these people have lost their own relatives, their loved ones. And these people have, you know, because of that loss, they're likely to go through mental health issues, including depression, anxiety. So I think as much as we're working for, you know, the climate change issues, you know, addressing the impact, it's better to also work on the mental health aspect of the victims of the climate change issues. So I think as far as we're moving forward, challenges are coming, are coming and going. I think we should also like try to re-innovate our strategies on how best we can solve the climate crisis. I believe this is our chance. Thank, Thank you. you. Yes, man, do you have a final word? <laughs> uh, well, only a few. Uh, happy I said uh, most of it. I think the most important thing is to talk about it and uh, talk about what, what you are doing yourself and the, that the life when you have changed uh, habits and changed your way of life that it is not a bad way it's not a bad life it's a good life uh, people think that we are going back to stone age if we are going through uh, the, the green transition uh, but uh, but it's not it's a better world uh, cleaner air and uh, uh, much uh, not so much noise and uh, so so it's greener and uh, just to, to talk in uh, about uh, uh, the transition in a positive way uh, and uh, I agree that uh, everywhere you can do it in on social media and uh, talk to uh, politicians uh, demonstrate and so on so we need to uh, fulfill our obligation with uh, be united in this uh, effort so talk and talk talk and talk and talk, and talk. Yeah. well that's what we're doing today so um, and now to give you the chance to speak oh sorry uh, yeah I was adding on what he said and what this was saying I think um, like if everyone of us understands that they also have like a chance and responsibility into you know making this possible like into fighting against climate change is possible sometimes you know like what we're speaking of course sometimes we'll say maybe the government maybe the, the people in the global north maybe you know all that stuff you're putting the blame on somewhere else as much as yes that is true like also ourselves we have the responsibility of actually working towards achieving climate crisis so we should also like put ourselves forward and make sure we work together selflessly, volunteering, you know, serving, helping the community, mobilizing people to achieve that powerful movement from a perspective of climate justice. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. Thanks to everyone for listening, and a special thanks to our guests, Happy Itros and Jesper Taigo. If you want to learn more about what we do, check out our Facebook and Instagram pages. Menfagelit Samvirke is a Danish NGO that works for a more just and sustainable world, collaborating with global partners worldwide as part of the ActionAid Alliance. Thank you everyone once again for listening, and until next time, goodbye!